Turn your great idea into a great success with the Small Business Resolutions Bundle. Just $5 will get you your own domain name, a powerful website builder, professional email, and search engine optimization to get your top listings on Google. Get started today at www.smallbusinessresolutions.ca. Hurry, this offer ends April 1st. Welcome to Startup Newsweek, your source for news affecting entrepreneurs in Canada. My name is Matt Allen, and today is March 22nd, 2016. According to PayNet data, commercial borrowing by small businesses in Canada dipped at the start of 2016 as the economy continued to fill the pain from the downturn in energy prices. Two new Microsoft Cloud data centers in Toronto and Quebec City could mean a new world of data storage for Canada's public and private sector, easing fear that sensitive information could enter the U.S. through data centers south of the border. The first Startup Canada community in Northern Canada launched yesterday in Whitehorse, connecting entrepreneurs in the North to the national network of entrepreneurs and support. The startup youth movement is growing in Canada. Jenny Hua, the creator of an app to connect parents to babysitters, won a pitch competition organized by Startup Youth during a March break boot camp for high school-aged entrepreneurs in Ottawa. I had a chance to sit down with Startup Youth founder Victoria Radburn, who says building entrepreneurial skills in youth is critical. Today's generation of young people are more entrepreneurial than they ever were. I founded Startup Youth because we need to continue to empower this generation of entrepreneurs. Startup Youth connects innovative youth with established startups in order to create a mutually beneficial relationship where new ideas, talent, and support can grow. Startup Youth empowers youth to not only gain entrepreneurial skills, but be able to thrive and flourish as a young entrepreneur. We need a nationwide movement behind programs like Startup Youth to take youth entrepreneurship and innovation in Canada to new heights. And it's back. Startup Canada Day on the Hill, Canada's leading entrepreneur, startup, and small business gathering, is set to attract more than 1,500 entrepreneurs to the nation's capital on May 5th for a day of keynotes, panels, announcements, policy hackathons, mentorship, pitches, and networking. Visit startupday.ca for more information. Early bird tickets are available only before March 31st, 2016. Startup Newsweek is brought to you by Great Work, helping founders and business owners make more effective decisions. Check out greatwork.io for better decisions. One of the most important parts of naming your new business is finding an available website name that works. Today's episode is brought to you by .ca. Join thousands of Canadian entrepreneurs who have chosen a .ca domain name for their business. Choose your .ca domain name at cira.ca forward slash startup today. Entrepreneurship doesn't have to be tough when it's cooked right. Co-founder of Relish Gourmet Burgers serves up well-done recipes for startup success. He's Rivers Corbett on the Startup Canada Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Season 2 of the Startup Canada Podcast Show. I'm your host, Rivers Corbett. The Startup Canada Podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the rallying network uniting Canada's entrepreneurship community. And on this podcast, we connect you, the idea person, the startup founder, the creative thinker with the movers and shakers of 
Canadian entrepreneurship. Here on the show is where we fill you in on trends and opportunities and possibilities for your next step as an entrepreneur and where we have conversations about advancing entrepreneurial growth and success in Canada. Today's episode is brought to you by Intuit QuickBooks, your partner in building a financially fit and fundable business. Get 50% off. That's right. 50% off QuickBooks online today by visiting intuit.quickbooks.ca forward slash start right. To any of our new listeners, remember to subscribe to the Startup Canada podcast in the iTunes store, then visit startupcan.ca to join the network to connect to support, mentors, training, funding, space, and to your local startup community. Ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a treat today. We've got a great show going on, and today we're just thrilled to have as our guest, serial startup employee and marketing guru, Erin Burry. She's the managing director at 88 Creative, which is a Toronto-based creative communications agency. And Erin and I are going to be talking about building a guerrilla campaign, branding, marketing, Marketing, starting up and spinning out, and we're going to explore effective advertising, strategic marketing, and yep, you've all been asking for it, and we're going to find out today how to get the likes of Oprah to retweet you. Erin is one of Canada's leading marketing experts. She's a tech journalist and a startup enthusiast who has been featured on the New York Times, Forbes, and CNN. She's a graduate of Carleton University with a degree in journalism. She lives in Toronto. Her past experiences include working as the manager managing editor at Betakick, writing for the Financial Post, and contributor to the Huffington Post. She was named as one of Marketing Magazine's top 30 under 30. Erin, is this all true? Well, it's true, but I'm not under 30 anymore. So uh, unfortunately, uh, that was a blast from the past. But you were still named the Marketing Magazine's top 30 under 30. I was, but okay. now I have to go for the 40 under 40s. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll get it there. No problem at all. But hey, it, you know, I remember when I was 13, I won top scorer on my hockey team and I still have the trophy. So I'm able to claim that I could score goals. So really welcome to the show. Um, you have got a very cool career going on, hanging out in a cool space. And you've been quoted as saying, no one else has more right to be doing what I am doing. Like that's moxie big time capital m moxie but what do you mean by that <laughs> well it's interesting i think i, I said that to uh, gloria chick who is uh, has a blog called urbane block and she has this series where she interviews female entrepreneurs and leaders called rogue stories and she kind of asked me about imposter syndrome and and you know feeling like somebody else feeling like you don't know what you're doing and i think you know i said that in response to that question when i sit back and think about it yeah, I feel like an imposter sometimes. Yeah, I feel like I have no idea what I'm doing. And then I remember that everybody else out there feels exactly the same. No one has it all figured out. Everyone still wonders what they want to be when they grow up. So when I, you know, hear my bio read out and think, wow, that sounds pretty cool. And hopefully they don't find me out for, for not knowing what I'm doing. I realize that, you know, no one else knows what they're doing. Everyone's figuring this out as they go. And, uh, and I think it's good to recognize that you still don't know some things and, and that's how you build a great team around you and find expert resources to help you 
you out along the way. Very cool. And look, I got a, I got a personal question I have to ask you. Uh, my daughter is graduating from King's in journalism. And uh, so what's a piece of word of advice that I could give to her for following a journalism career that would be, okay, let's presume it's she's following her passion in a niche, but is there an area of journalism that she should, uh, that you say, oh my God, that's so cool, that area? Great question. I mean, journalism, I graduated in, in 2007 and I actually took a page from both of my parents' book. Both of my parents are journalism graduates, one from Carleton, one from Ryerson. And my mom took a, a very similar path to mine. She went into marketing at Nortel and now owns her own PR consultancy. And my dad was a career journalist. He worked for over 30 years at a, a community newspaper. Uh, so I really saw that the, the divergent paths that a journalism degree can set you on. So I guess my biggest piece of advice is, you know, don't be close-minded to the opportunities that exist exist outside of traditional journalism. Because mm. when I graduated, everyone wanted to be a foreign correspondent and a daily journalist at the Toronto Star. And you just realize that now the, the journalism landscape, the media landscape is so consolidated and it's not as traditional as it used to be. There are so many different kinds of journalists. And if I were graduating today, and the advice I would have for your daughter is look at those really unique new journalism jobs like, you know, podcasting mm. or working, working for BuzzFeed Canada, putting together GIF posts and working on really awesome videos. Journalism is not just writing a 500 word blog post anymore or putting together a minute and 30 TV news piece. It's it's really changed and emerged. And even though the, the landscape is consolidating and there's a lot of doom and gloom, there's so much opportunity beyond the borders of the daily newspaper. So if I were graduating and if I were your daughter, I'd say go look at BuzzFeed and Vice and all of these really cool media outlets that are going really stepping outside the box. And I think there's still a ton of potential. But if it doesn't work out, you can always follow in my step, footsteps and go into marketing. Right on. You know, it's I can just hear now Cyprian kind of saying, okay, Rivers, get back to the interview. Is this <laughs> about your daughter? <laughs> but I appreciate it. So, uh, okay, you've, uh, you've had this illustrious career, but it, it, it kind of started somewhere, right? So from working in a startup to spinning out a startup, can you tell us about that, uh, spinning out a startup, can you tell us about your, your journey, your entrepreneurial journey? Absolutely. So I think a lot of entrepreneurs and probably a lot of the entrepreneurs who have appeared on the Startup Canada podcast dreamt of starting their own company from when they were a little kid. They had lemonade stands. They were, you know, fleecing their neighbors for shoveling their driveway. I was never that kid. I had parents who worked in, you know, big companies and I, I was never surrounded by entrepreneurialism and I didn't get bitten by the bug until after I actually graduated from school. I was working at a PR agency and I was introduced to Sarah Prevett, who is the founder mm. of Sprouter and now the founder of Future Design School and a really celebrated serial entrepreneur. And, She's amazing. And she, she is amazing. And she she uh, was actually working with my mom at the time. So this just proves nepotism also works. <laughs> and, uh, and she contacted me and said, you know, we're looking for a community manager for this new startup uh, called Sprouter. And really that person would do PR and social media and events and all of the things that fall outside design development and uh, and founding the company. So it was a really new term at the time, but I joined in 2008, right at the height of the recession, left my cozy job at a PR agency to go join a startup. And <laughs> that was where it all began. That's where I fell in love with startups and realized that they give you so much more experience. They're so much more fulfilling and you make so much more of a difference and the, the learning curve is just way, way steeper. So, um, so I fell in love with startups then and spent about three years at Sprouter uh, before we were brought into the, the post-media team. And we actually launched Betakit from there, the startup public which is still active and thriving today. 
uh, and spent a couple of years there building out the team. And then um, unfortunately was laid off from post media, speaking about that tough media landscape. Mm. I'm also glossing over all of the failures and down moments here. So any entrepreneurs listening, it was not just this meteoric rise. Yeah. Uh, there were lots of valleys they in there. They can see through that, too. by the way. They, I know. They, they, they know. know about it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that, and then after I was kind of, you know, I went to Europe and, and had that existential, what do I want to do next with my life moment? And I knew I wanted to be entrepreneurial, but I still wasn't the type of person that woke up with a million ideas that they had to execute. So I actually was approached to run 88 Creative, which at the time was a four or five person small team um, that was part of this larger startup called Buzz Buzz Home, which is a real estate startup. And since then, you know, it's been three years and we just incorporated the company separately as of January 1st, 2016. And so now I am running a startup. I didn't found it, but, um, but very much entrepreneurial and had to go through the process of incorporating and going through all of that so now I feel almost like a real entrepreneur because I've gone through incorporating a company. Yeah, well, and, and you you know, I'm going to call you out on this because uh, in the original script um, that was sent to me, it was very specific that you were not an entrepreneur. You were a, a startup entrepreneur employee. Uh, what's the difference to you? Yeah, I guess. I, I don't know. It's always made me uncomfortable when people say I'm a serial entrepreneur because to me, an entrepreneur is someone who puts their own, you know, puts their own money up and, and goes through months of eating ramen noodles to support <laughs> their startup getting off the ground. I never had to deal with that. You know, when I came into Sprouter, we had angel investment and I was paid a salary and I never had to go through those sleepless nights where I didn't know if I was going to be able to make payroll. And same with 88 Creative. You know, we always, we were part of a business unit within BuzzBuzz Buzz Home and until January, we didn't have to worry about, um, you know, if we had a bad month or, if, you know, we needed to borrow a bit of money, it was okay. Cause we were just a, a part of this larger startup. But mm. to me, an entrepreneur is someone who their stress level is always at an 11 out of 10. And, um, I saw that firsthand when I was working with Sarah at Sprouter, I saw mm. how she devoted her entire life to this. And often she, she struggled alone because she wanted to shield her team, mm -hmm. us from, from what was really going on and from some of the challenges that were presented. So I guess I'm fine with being called an entrepreneur, but I would never want to misrepresent, uh, the fact that I haven't had to eat ramen for any <laughs> point in my career. <laughs> so when you do, we can call you a true exactly. entrepreneur. Exactly. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's do a, a, a little bit of a pivot and now talk about uh, about marketing, which is uh, something that's near and dear to your heart and you're very good at. And what does every entrepreneur need to think about when developing their marketing strategy? Because first of all, I don't think, in my experience, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs even give it the focus that it deserves, uh, and then then so subsequently, it doesn't get the right uh, attention at all if they're going to give it to them. So what do they, first of all, do you believe it's a, it's imperative right from the very beginning and what do they need to think about when developing their strategy? Great questions. I think it absolutely is imperative. You can have the most wonderful product in the world and no marketing. And it's like the tree falling in the woods. If, if nobody's around to, to buy your product or to learn about it, you're not going to be very successful. And conversely, if you have a horrific product that nobody actually wants and you do spend a million dollars on marketing, chances are it'll be equally un as unsuccessful. So I think, you know, the first lesson for marketing is have a great product or service. And, and really it does help when you start to go out with PR campaigns or social media marketing, having a 
a great product that that's easy to use, that people love, that's priced right, that's really going to make all the difference when you actually go out and, and put together your marketing plan. And the marketing plan is something I would develop. Even if you're an entrepreneur who's not a marketer, you know, there's so many great resources online for and frameworks for putting together a marketing plan. And they take you through things like who is your target audience? Where do they hang out? Um, you know, if you're marketing to teenagers, yes, you should probably be using Snapchat and you should probably be doing campus marketing. If you're marketing to boomers, it's going to be the complete opposite. So sit down and go through that framework and figure out who am I actually talking to? Where do they hang out both online and offline? What are my various marketing channels? Maybe some of that is to the end consumer. Maybe some of it's going to be through partnerships or wholesaling or retailers. Um, So just think about all the various channels that you're going to reach your consumers. And even if you're not going to be the one marketing, even if you're hiring a full-time marketing person or hiring an agency, you really do need to understand all the components that go into your marketing plan because you want to be able to track that over time and see what's working and what's not and, and tweak accordingly. Um, so I think that's the first step. And then, you know, when we were at Sprouter, we always thought about things in three different buckets. How do you acquire your users? How do you re-engage and retain those existing users? And how do you get those users to refer other people? So when you're creating that marketing plan, don't just think about about how you're going to get a customer once. Think about how you're going to really engage those customers and turn them into advocates for your brand and then how you're going to get them to invite their friends or, or refer mm-hmm. their friends to your product. Yeah, very cool. And so you, you talked about some important elements. Now let's get back to the nitty gritty of ROI, return on investment for your marketing strategy. I mean, usually it's so it's, 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 it's a space that no one has been able to directly connect to bottom lines or whatever. So what are some of the ways in which you measure ROI from a marketing strategy perspective? Great question. I mean, there are some marketing channels that are just so easy to measure. And there are some that are really a lot harder and they're a bit more ambiguous. And I don't think anyone has necessarily cracked the nut. So a great example of that is public relations. So we do a lot of PR campaigns for startups. Um, Say, for example, Carnivore Club, uh, which is a monthly charcuterie delivery service. We work with them and do a lot of their PR around Father's Day and Christmas and some of these big gifting holidays. And, you know, Tim from Carnivore Club is very intense about tracking conversion and making sure that his marketing spend is actually driving back to sales. So in his Google Analytics, he has it all set up so that when he's published in CBC, he can see the number of people that click on the Carnivore Club link in the CBC article and the number of those people who actually purchase a box and the dollar value of the people who click through. So he's actually able to put a dollar value on each media hit as it comes through. Very trackable. But what it doesn't track is any broadcast um, coverage. You know, he was on The Social or Maryland and Dennis or Canada AM, you're not going to see that come through on your Google Analytics. Or if something's in print, you know, if he's in the National Post, you're not going to be able to see the people that read that and then went online. So I would say there, there's always going to be things that are trackable and Google Analytics, or if, if you're a mobile app developer, maybe Flurry Analytics are really great ways to see where your traffic's coming from and what those drivers are and who's converting based on those sources. But ultimately, there's always going to be things that you can't track, things like word of mouth, things like, you know, broadcaster or print PR, um, or just, yeah, there are always going to be things you can't track, but you, you should have two kind of marketing buckets. Number one is those things that you can directly track. So things like Facebook ads, things like your social media traffic that you can measure back to your website. And then the more intangible things like word of mouth and, um, and, you know, offline 
experiential things. So I would say make sure that you have a good stream of trackable marketing and a good stream of marketing that you know is building brand awareness and reputation. And then you should see ROI come through. I mean, we've seen even, for example, our client Giftogram, they're a gifting, a mobile gifting app. And they were on, they turned off all of their other ads when they were on the social. And so they knew when they saw a spike in purchases that day, it was directly attributed to the social, even if they didn't see the traffic come directly from the social's website or anybody redeeming a specific code. So I think it's just about, you know, turning off the other things when something big is happening to gauge whether there's a spike or not. And then having those trackable things in place like Google Analytics and setting them up from the beginning so you know exactly how many people are coming from your social channels and your PR efforts. Long answer. Yeah, it's a great answer. But what it really reinforces to me, if you're not good at marketing, get connected with somebody or some organization that is because by doing it right, it can be very, very, very powerful, not only from an impact perspective, but also from a information coming back to your perspective. So uh, I love the long answer because it reinforces to people because that's what I find when I'm entering a lot of uh, people, you know, they say, oh, I got a great deal to buy an ad in the local newspaper. Well, that's the wrong reason to buy. You know, it's not about good price. It's about value prop as it relates to your customer group and so on, as you just said. Um, Absolutely. And, and you'd be surprised. It's funny. We do. It, it also goes back to who your target market is. So for right. example, we, we work with a lot of tech entrepreneurs and they'll come in and say, well, we want you to do our PR. And we'll say, well, what's your dream publication? And they'll say TechCrunch. And we'll say, but you're marketing to 45-year-old <laughs> moms in the suburbs. And you realize that they want to be in the publications that they read because that's what they think is influential, but they're not matching that with who their actual customer is. So I absolutely agree with you. You need to get it set up from from day one. And and that's the thing, going through that just simple marketing plan yourself will help you develop who those those customers are so you don't make the mistake of approaching the wrong people. And there are also a lot of things that you need to be setting up from day one. Like if I were starting a business tomorrow, SEO would be my number one spend. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Because we we actually worked with um, an SEO firm in New York after I joined 88 Creative. We were launching a new website and they said, you know, I don't know anything about SEO. I know that it works, but I have no idea how to implement it. So we got the experts and, and they said on your homepage, put in this copy, put this on the back end. And we went through our entire website and implemented it. And I swear to you, the next day we were the number one search result for Digital Marketing Agency Toronto. Wow. And we still are to this day. So wow. to me, that was an investment that was so worth it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of entrepreneurs, if they just put that effort in on day one, they would really build that SEO over time. And then they wouldn't have to spend hundreds of thousands or even just hundreds of dollars on Google AdWords. Mm -hmm. So anyways, day one, yes, Google Analytics and do your marketing framework. And if you don't know how to actually implement it, that's when you call in an expert. Yeah, very cool. I understand that you were quite the mastermind behind a wildly popular Rob Ford, the past (laughs) mayor of Toronto campaign. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that was one of those funny things. I mean, as a small agency, this was I guess two years ago, thank thank goodness we're that far away from the Rob Ford phenomenon <laughs> right now. But um, it, that must have been a couple of years ago. And you know what? You see a lot of these. If, if you read Advertising Age or Ad Week or Marketing Magazine, you see that a lot of agencies do really cool marketing campaigns, but they often have big budgets associated. So we were trying to test, you know, what can we do for a really cheap uh, for a really small amount of money, but that will have a lot of viral impact. And can you actually make something go viral if it's a good enough idea? Because we always have clients to it, coming to us saying, can you make this go viral? Can you make this video go viral? <laughs> Sneak peek, the answer yeah, is just no. just snap your finger, right? <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> but in this case, we were we were just sitting around the office, and um, one of our, our really creative digital strategists said, "You know, um, Rob Ford is apparently missing. He's up in Muskoka somewhere. What if we actually created a Rob Ford missing poster and went and plastered it around the city of Toronto?" So it took us about ten minutes, some some really fun copy, and about ten cents of printer ink to actually print out these posters, go put them up around Toronto, and then we seated the photos of them on poles, telephone poles around to some of the media outlets in Toronto and on social media. And it was picked up like wildfire. I don't even think we could have anticipated it. It was picked up in media outlets like Blog TO and it made it onto Jimmy Kimmel, who, if you remember, yeah. was, he was pretty obsessed with Rob Ford at the <laughs> time. Obsessed, yep. <laughs> yeah, and it actually made it into CNN's photos of the year from 2014, I believe it was. So to us, that was just an example of, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive to be successful. And it also shows that while you can put a bit of thought into something quote unquote, going viral, there is just a lot of luck and timeliness associated with it. I mean, we've definitely tried to make things go viral before and it hasn't worked. So it's never a guarantee. But if you can do something that's timely, often funny and really simple, it can take off online and with the media. And I think the Rob Ford campaign is just an example of that. So simple, right? We try to make it so complicated, but something so simple. And there's nothing worse than spending, you know, hundreds or thousands mm. of dollars on filming a video you think is going to go viral and then it gets 200 views on YouTube. Mm. So I would say if you're trying, if you're out there listening and you're trying to do a really viral campaign, start with something simple and inexpensive. And based on your success with that, try things out, see what works, see what doesn't, then invest in maybe a really slick professional video. But, you know, there's nothing worse than putting all your marketing budget into something that flops. Yeah, so true. Um in bigger organizations, uh, there's a marketing department and there's a sales department. And typically they are more like stepbrothers or stepsisters than anything else, all in the same family, but very different agendas. How does, uh, how does the marketing team best work with the sales team? It's a great question. I mean, I think sales teams need to their biggest target obviously is selling product or selling a service and marketing's like we just talked about ROI isn't always as cut and dry. So for marketing, I think the job is to get people into the top of the funnel. I'll give you an example. We work with a lot of real estate clients um, and you're never going to sell. We work with a lot of condo developers. You're never going to sell a condo through a tweet. So we're often responsible for, you know, running the social media and the digital marketing campaigns for these condo developers. And we'll sit in a room every week with their sales team and the sales team will say, why don't we have more sales? And I'll say to them, you know, we can't sell a condo based on a tweet. All we can do is get people into the top of the funnel, whether that's getting them into the sales center or getting them to register online for the project. And then it's the sales team's job to move them through that funnel, to nurture them and to get them through to the final sale. So to me, that's really how marketing and sales work together. The marketing people get people into the top of the funnel, whether that's through a really great PR campaign or a viral video or, you know, a trade show booth. And then the salespeople are the ones who actually nurture them and move through it online. And I think a really great example of how, if, especially if you're an online company or a SaaS company, you can do that is through HubSpot and by automating all of your marketing. So if you're, um, if you're a sales and marketing team, you can work together on this great lead nurturing campaign where maybe I put my email in to access a really great ebook and then your automated marketing system sends me an email a few days later and says, you know, I, we'd love to set up a call with one of our salespeople. And then once they get on the phone with the salespeople, they actually 
actually close the sale. So, I mean, there definitely needs to be a relationship between sales and marketing, but I think there needs to be an understanding on both sides about whose responsibility is what. Mm. And it can't just be one side blaming the other. They really have to work together. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. They are a family, right? So uh, that's uh, that's a good reinforcement of that. Um, Aaron, you've got thousands of followers on Twitter. Is that true? It is true. It is true. And how many do you have? Oh, at last time I checked, I think around 21,000. 21,000 followers <laughs> on Twitter. That's absolutely fantastic. So if our guests are starting off or are really struggling with getting followers, what are what are the top three tips you can give them on how to get more followers on, uh, on Twitter? So I, I used to get asked this question a lot because I, st- I got on Twitter not the earliest. I wasn't the earliest of early adopters, but I got on in December 20, 2008. And so, I mean, whenever people would ask me back in the day, oh, you have a couple thousand followers. How did you do it? I would say one sh- handshake at a time. And mm. that's still very largely the case. You know, going to events, shaking hands with people, meeting people offline is the best way to form online relationships. And it sounds counterintuitive, but some of the best friends that I've made in real life came from Twitter relationships. And some of my favorite tweeters, I met offline at a conference and then followed them there. Um, so that's my first tip is don't just assume that Twitter is all about online networking. Bring those relationships offline or when you meet people in person, make sure you make those connections on social media to reinforce them and to continue them over time. I think my second tip would be Remember that Twitter is not a sales tool. There's so much conversation these days around Twitter and is it failing and is it not failing? Uh-huh. And a really interesting um, point was made by Ottawa-based entrepreneur Erin Blasky. I follow her on, on, we're friends on Facebook, and she wrote something about how Twitter's not broken. It's us that are broken because all we do is shout at each other. Uh We post self-promo all the time, check out my company, check out this article I wrote, check out my dog. People want to have conversations on Twitter, and that's the best way that you can gain followers. Find a Twitter chat related to your industry, whether that's pets or technology or health or beauty, and actually participate in it. Follow people that you interact with during those chats and you know reply back to people, retweet their stuff, add comments. That's the number one best way that you're going to build followers is by actually interacting in a genuine way. And we participate all the time in ad week chats on behalf of 88 Creative. We participate in chats for clients, and we find that it's just the best way to form those genuine relationships. Um, and the third thing I would say is you have to proactively, you got to give a little to get a little, mm. you know, go out and actually follow people who you are interested in, who you think are, are relevant people in your industry. Um, and, and they'll probably follow you back. If you have really great, if you're not being that salesy promo person, they'll probably follow you back. So don't be afraid to go out there and build your list of people you're following in order to, to expose them to you and hopefully have them follow you back. Yeah. All great tips. And I, I've got to go back to that first one where you talked about where you're out handshaking and smiling and drinking wine with and so on. And it's, I think a natural reaction to say, okay, I'll wait till they follow me versus me making the first move. If I could put it in that connection uh, to actually follow them. Uh, You made the connection already. Just reinforce that connection by actually following those people. Simple little thing to do. Brilliant. Brilliant. So is that what you did with Oprah? You're on her show, kind of hanging out, having wine, beer, whatever. And she said, hey, Oprah, I'm going to follow you on Twitter. How'd that one happen? Oh my goodness. I wish I could say I was on Oprah's show <laughs> while it was still on the air. No, this was a funny one, actually. And, and speaking about getting, how do you get more followers on Twitter? 
get a celebrity to retweet you and then the follows come flooding in. Although I have to say they're from kind of weird stalker followers, not from people you'd actually <laughs> want following you. But um, no, it was funny. So I'm a big fan of Oprah. I admire her as an entrepreneur, as a female leader. And let's face it, I just loved her show and read her magazine. So she, when she was coming to Canada, she was launching her own network in Canada. And I just tweeted something uh, to, along the lines of, you know, own launches in Canada today. Everybody gets own kind of like the everybody gets a car. Yeah. Um, so the tweet was actually kind of mocking Oprah, but she deleted <laughs> that part of it and retweeted it. And immediately it was one of those things where I was staring at my Twitter feed and all of a sudden it just started refreshing and refreshing. And there was a million comments <laughs> and a million followers. And I'm like, Oh my God, what happened? And, uh, and then I proceeded to stop working, called my mom, called every single one of my friends, <laughs> and then just watched my Twitter feed for about 24 hours. What a cool thing. Um, yeah, it was it was really surreal to have happen. And I know it sounds ridiculous to say, oh, I was retweeted by Oprah. But I have to believe at this point that she actually did, did her Twitter herself. So I think I can call her a friend now. Maybe Sure you can. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And speaking, of, speaking of entrepreneurialism, I actually emailed her and told her she should hire me to run Own Canada, but she never emailed me back. That's so I rude. guess we're not that close friends. That's just freaking rude. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Wait till she really needs you, Erin, and you say no, Oprah. Exactly. That's you had a, your chance, Oprah. You had your chance, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, just to reinforce it, my son is a, is a uh, I'll call a B star on social media and he gets started in Vine. And, uh, and he, that's exactly what happened. Uh, where he he started to really explode. Uh, he had a vine, and one of the vinees, viners, whatever you want to call him, that was a rock star, got it and revined it, and um, and he's never looked back since. So just that that reach out is such a great strategy. You know, why not give it a try? What's the worst thing that can happen? They not do anything, right? But what can happen exactly. is all this other stuff. Very cool. Oh yeah. So uh, let's talk about media appearances and you know uh this whole thing about newsworthiness and so on what 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 is considered newsworthy that is a great question i would say we get a ton of startups who come to us and say, we want to hire you to do PR. And I'll say, okay, great. Well, what news are you announcing? And they'll say, we don't have any news. We just want to get coverage. <laughs> and the number one piece of advice I have for anyone looking to get PR is you existing is not news. And you need an angle. It doesn't have to be an announcement. It could just be, you know, tying yourself to a current event or commissioning some stats around your industry, but you need a, a news hook to approach a journalist with. There are exceptions to this. So for example, you know, the Global Mail will often run startup profiles and they're not tied to necessarily a piece of news. So there are absolutely ways to get coverage just for entrepreneurial profiles or things like that. But overwhelmingly, you need to have a news hook. So what's newsworthy? It's anything related to a trending current event. So if you're a startup in, you know, snow removal today, for example, and it's snowing out, you're probably going to have a chance to get some media coverage around that. And one of our clients, Jiffy, actually does on-demand snow removal. So I think my PR team is pitching it out right <laughs> as we speak. Um, or is it around the time of year? I mentioned Carnivore Club, right? If you're a Carnivore Club, you're probably not going to do a big PR push in September. You're going to wait until those big holidays where people are looking to get gifts. Uh, Christmas, Father's Day, Valentine's Day, that kind of thing. Or maybe it's around stats. Maybe you're a SaaS company and you've pulled out a stat that says, you know, 75% of freelancers get paid within a week when they use FreshBooks. Those are the kind of stats that you can go out to media with and get them to cover. But simply emailing and saying, I'm an entrepreneur. Here's my story. And here's what I do. 
often isn't enough to get a journalist's attention. So figure out what your news is. I mean, there are some really natural inflection points for startups, like, you know, raising your first round of funding or launching a version two of your platform or reaching a sales milestone. So those can all be used as news hooks. And if you don't have any of those, because a lot of times there isn't that much news going on at a startup, that's when you want to think about, can I tie this to a current event? Can I get a spokesperson who can add some credibility? Or can I actually make the news? Can I do a PR stunt? Can I set up in Dundas Square and hand out free whatever it is um, and, and get some broadcast cameras out there? So that's when you have to get creative. But yes, you existing, unfortunately, is not front page news. I always say that business is like the dating game. So you're meeting the guy or the girl for the first time at the bar. Yet if you're going to talk about yourself all the time and how great you are, odds are you're not going to have the date. But it's amazing, Ace, from a marketing perspective, this is exactly how people start off because they think everybody wants to hear their great story when in reality, you got to understand what they need out of the conversation, not what you want to tell them. And you just reinforce that. So awesome. That's 100% true. And often, you know, that brings up a good point, which is that journalists are often know what they're writing about already. They have an editorial calendar, especially at publications like, you know, Chatelaine or Women's Magazine. Mm. They know what they're writing about months in advance because they often tie it to advertisers. So, you know, November is hair removal month and December is home DIY month. So if you can find out what those journalists are writing about, you can actually slot yourself into some of those sources and say, you know, um, we're launching a really cool new product in November. It would be a perfect fit for that section. Can we talk? And that's a lot better than going to them and just saying, hey, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, Mm. Let's chat. Yeah, very cool. So uh, if you're coaching me, it's my first time. I got my big interview coming on with uh, with Aaron, and she's the famous journalist. Um, uh, how do I best prepare for my first interview? Great question. I would say go through, you know what? I actually did this the other day. Um, so we offer media training at 88 Creative, but it's often my PR team who's doing it. But my boyfriend is actually a first-time entrepreneur and he had his first interview on Amber Max Sirius XM show and he was so nervous. <laughs> and I said, you know this stuff. You you know it, your company inside and out. But what we did was we sat down for a couple hours and just went through mock interviews. And I think that's the best thing that you can do when you're preparing for an interview. Write down the 20 questions that you've been asked most or that you think you would be asked most about your business. Where did the idea come from? What's the business model? Um, you know, do you have investment? What's your five-year plan? All of these questions that entrepreneurs typically get asked. And then sit down with a friend or a family member or anyone who will listen to you and have them go through this mock interview with you and have them give you feedback on things like whether you say um all the time, which is a common mistake, or whether you explain things well and it comes across well. And even just going through the practice of answering the same questions a few times will really help you. And it's funny when, when he went on the show, almost every single question she asked was one that we had gone through in our prep. No and he felt, yeah. And he felt so much better about it because it's true. When you interview an entrepreneur, it's the same five to 10 questions yeah. that, that you get asked all the time and, and you will become more comfortable over time. I would also say, understand what medium you're best for. I love doing TV, but it terrifies the crap out of some people. They don't want to do TV. They're not great for it. If that's the case, find the person in your organization who is great on TV, whether yeah. it's the marketing person or your CTO or whoever it is, and have them do any broadcast interviews because there's nothing worse than being absolutely terrified 
qualified for an interview and it comes across on the screen. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. There was a guy I just interviewed from Manitoba Mucklucks uh, uh, a little earlier and and a colleague of mine is doing a symposium on uh, Aboriginal entrepreneurship. So I said I was going to meet uh, this this gentleman, Sean's his name. And so I asked him, I said, do you know, would you, or do you speak? And he said, no, he says, I don't like doing that at all, but I have somebody that is so excellent at telling our story. So it's not about just because you're the CEO, you got to be the speaker, hand off that, be what you're good at and stick to that and hire somebody else to do what you're not good at. Love that. Absolutely. Did your boyfriend give you a big high five after take you out to dinner and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think we went for champagne, but uh, I think the real champagne will come when he starts making money and officially launches. Yeah, (laughs) I love it. Right now, he's in ramen stage. So So, that's cool. So you are kind of getting more and more into that entrepreneurial stage where you really are an entrepreneur. Yeah, I guess this is my first startup because technically I'm his marketing advisor. And don't worry, I negotiated some good equity. Good stuff. Good for you. Um, (laughs) You were very active in the, uh, or sorry, you are very active in in the Toronto startup community on a, and on this broadcast there are many um, leaders with startup communities across the board um, and when they begin uh, particularly that whole environment of marketing branding communications is so critically important because you're a new kid on the block you're the new kid in the school how would you recommend that uh, that to take Canadian entrepreneurship at the local community level that our our, our community leaders uh, approach that from a from a from a marketing perspective that you think is absolutely necessary how do i think that if if you're in a local community outside toronto yep yeah well i think i mean there are not there are obviously some bigger startup communities uh like toronto montreal and vancouver but startup canada is a perfect example of how there's really these pockets of amazing startups all across the country i've been in the last year alone in edmonton saskatoon st john speaking with entrepreneurs about their businesses and i think it's really challenging for them um not to build communities in their local areas they're all great i mean you go to a place like st john's and they have their own startup accelerators and incubators and investors and they're this little microcosm of entrepreneurship. I think where they feel a little bit isolated is connecting to the media specifically in places like Toronto. Um, And there can be a definite media bias. I mean, I think about when I write my financial post columns, I naturally write them about Toronto-based companies more often because they're the ones I'm exposed to. So if I were in a local community like, you know, Saskatoon or Edmonton or somewhere outside of one of the big three startup communities, I would be really focused on building my local network. I would go to as many startup events as I could. I would get hooked into the local chamber of commerce and the local startup incubators and schools and and really get out there and pound the pavement like we were talking about earlier. Um, But I would also be focused on building a relationship with media and organizations like Startup Canada in the bigger cities. And often that's as simple as, you know, shooting them an email or finding out when one of the media is going to be in your area for a talk or a conference or meeting up when you're at a larger conference. I mean, South by Southwest was kind of the startup conference in North America. And now I think it's a lot, it's too big. It's too hard to make an impact. But there are lots of events across Canada, like the Grow Conference in Vancouver or Startup Festival in Montreal. If I were in a small community, I'd probably be saving up some of my marketing budget and going to one of those mm, events so that I can idea. meet meet all these people that I admire in person, shake hands. And it's, it is true. It's so much easier to make a connection in person. So if you can get to one of those events and meet your dream investors and journalists in person, it's going to make a lot more of a difference than just shooting them a cold email. But even that, I mean, 
people like BetaKit, you know, I do the, the BetaKit podcast now weekly with their team and they always say they're looking for more stories from outside of these major startup centers. They just don't get sent them that often. So don't be afraid to send a pitch to these people. Don't be afraid to talk to them on social media. Yeah, well, I know from uh, from being fortunate enough being a part of this, uh, this podcast team and I really emphasize team. I think it's just an incredible machine that's been put together. There are wonderful people across uh, this country that are doing amazing things they want to help those in that entrepreneurial journey including journalists and so uh, you're right they want to know feel free to reach out don't be scared it's not uh, it's not in their uh, dna to uh, to uh, to be egomaniacs at all it's it's exact opposite they really really want to help so thanks for that reinforcement mm-hmm. so Aaron, my friend this is uh, coming to the end of this uh, wonderful time uh, hanging out and i'm going to give you the last word uh, there's a national audience here. They're uh, they're very sad that this interview is ended right now. But <laughs> but leave them on a high. Uh, leave them with some with some thoughts that you think would uh, would really uh, be important for them to to remember and reflect on. I guess the, the the thing that always helps me is remembering that the average time from launch to exit for a startup is seven years. And a lot of these startups that you see in the media, that you hear about, uh, they seem like overnight successes, but it's not the case. It is a long journey. It is one user at a time, one customer at a time. And it often can feel like a slog, like a challenge, and like you're not getting anywhere. But just remember that if you really hack away at it, if you do all the things that we talked about, you will eventually see success and that hockey stick will start to go up. Um, and so I think just, you know, be patient and remember that even if you have small failures in the end, failure is a good thing when you're an entrepreneur. We've all gone through it and uh, hopefully you come through the other side and are successful. I noticed you said we've all gone through it. That means that you are admitting that you are an entrepreneur. <laughs> or or that I've just failed a lot as an average yeah, citizen. maybe that's Either it. one. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Erin Berry. She's the managing director at 88 Creative. Erin, you're a rock star. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Rivers. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today on the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly program dedicated to unlocking the entrepreneurial potential of every Canadian. Want access to even more amazing entrepreneur content? Well, then make sure you check out startupcan.ca for the latest startup community news and upcoming events like the popular online training events, startup chats, and startup school. Visit startupcan.ca forward slash events for more details. And my name is Rivers Corbett. I'm your host. As always, I invite you to follow me on Twitter at Rivers Corbett. I do the same thing with conveying all kinds of cool ideas and uh, conversations with entrepreneurs around the planet to help you guys have super success. And also, I'm pleased to introduce my newest business venture, Coaching by Rockstars. That's www.coachingbyrockstars.com, where I am building an amazing team of business coaches to help entrepreneurs around the planet. If you've got an interest in that, come and check us out. Until next week, I'm Rivers Corbett, leaving you now with a sneak peek of next week's episode. And did you get to, you get sponsors to bring them up, Ray, or are these uh, ones that you're self-funding yourself, or do they just kind of hop on a plane and say, I'm coming because it's a great, great thing you're doing? 
Uh, so, so it takes money to put on the conference itself, but uh, one of the things that we do is we don't pay any speaker fees. So this is a right, fundraiser right. for the nonprofit, but also right. it's not that hard to convince these speakers to come in because of the subject matter. They all love talking about traction because that's how they built their businesses. And right. the caliber of people is, is large enough that uh, they all want to be part of it. And so this is a, the cool thing about it is that Vancouver was so wildly successful. All these speakers from San Francisco were raving about it. And they were asking, why did it, doesn't this happen in San Francisco? Why is this conference not in San Francisco? <laughs> and so just a few months later, like we did the first one in Vancouver in June of 2015. And in October 2015, we did one in San Francisco. When you, when you did the uh, the repeat from Vancouver into San Francisco, did you basically take the model that you created in Vancouver and um, and just uh, transplant it down into San Francisco? Same same programming and all that kind of stuff because it's a new audience? In terms of the format, yeah. It was, yeah. It's, if it's not broke, don't fix it. But in terms, in terms of the speakers, uh, Vancouver is far more earlier stage, whereas right. uh, San right. Francisco is further along. So uh, the focus in San Francisco is more about scaling and monetization, whereas in Vancouver it's uh, primarily on customer acquisition and then retention and then a little bit of touch point on monetization.